welcome to Film Forums. I'm Richard Williams, the creator of this platform, a place dedicated to the filmmaking community. We interview members of the film industry to find out what it really takes to make a movie, bring a script to screen, or secure that acting role. If that sounds good to you, please subscribe to us on YouTube and follow us on your favourite podcasting platform so you can be the first to know when an episode drops. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Welcome to Film Forums. My name is Aisha Zvili and I have a very special guest with me today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Ferdinand or Ferdy Kingsley. So what's your background? Well, I'm an actor. I grew up around acting and the theatre and was playing kid parts and would see all the grown-ups having a whale of a time thinking, why can't someone who does that as a hobby make it into his job? Um, and then, you know, after some toing and froing about what my path would be in life, I went to Guildhall Drama School in London and that's how it all got started professionally for me. Fantastic. So your parents, obviously, they're they're very well accomplished. I'm guessing that that also must have helped to kind of inspire you in the sense that you knew it was a possibility because a lot of people, you know, they're told, well, you can't be an actor. It's too hard. You know, you, there's too much competition. It's impossible. Whereas your parents had already done it. It kind of works the other way as well. They kind of showed me that there is a lottery involved in terms of luck. I was made a very aware every day that <laughs> what had happened to dad's career was not what happened to most careers and that it takes a long time. You know, it took him years and years of working his way up. And in fact, there was no illusion that it was easy. The discussion was quite the opposite. Both parents were very much at pains to say, look, firstly, it's incredibly hard to maintain consistency. Secondly, it's quite a lonely job. You know, a lot of the time it's tough on the people around you. It's tough on families. It can be financially tough. And so it, it, it's easy to imagine that it was just like, yeah, you can do it. So, so can I. But actually it was more like, wow, you did it. So if I'm going to do it, I'm going to have to do it on my own terms. Obviously now you're doing a lot of films, but you started with a really strong background in theatre. Can you tell us about some of the theatre projects that you took up and how that experience was for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my heart is still very much there. It's only sort of coincidence that I've been doing screen over stage. At the time, certainly when I was at Guildhall, the, the training was very theatre orientated because that's how all drama schools operated up until, you know, the last few years. I mean, there was screen training, but it was, it was pretty minimal. So when I graduated, I felt very, very, very comfortable on stage and less certain of my craft on screen. So yeah, when I left, I did a year and a bit sort of all in one stretch at the National Theatre, which when you're 21, 22 is amazing. You just feel like the absolute king of the world and they look after you incredibly well. And it feels like you're kind of your, your learning experience goes on because you're so supported there. So I did three plays in that stint there, uh, one of which was Hamlet. And if I were to give one tip for every like young actor's brain, I would say, even if you never think you're ever going to play it, learn Hamlet or learn as much of it as you possibly can, because my brain stretched, my bravery stretched, my, I think my ability to think in normal life stretched just through having to tackle, you know, that complexity and that mass of thought and dialogue. And, and then I did, you know, I did some telly after that, but very much felt like I needed a lot of guidance because I felt like I was just shouting everything. My first big stint in front of camera would have been Victoria. I'd done a fair few telly jobs before that, a couple of films, 
and had been happy with my work on them. But but on Victoria, you know, I had I had three years of one character to play with, which is a real luxury because it means that you can really take the pressure off going, right, I've got to deliver this in the next four weeks or five weeks or six weeks, however long you're, you're doing a film or an episode of something for. And you take the pressure off and really explore your craft and your character. And so by the time I came out of Victoria, I felt like like I had felt when I left drama school with stage work. You know, I just felt like I am not inhibited anymore and I'm comfortable in my skin and on any set. So, you know, that's something that I feel really thankful for to have had a, a, a stint on a show where I got to stop worrying about the acting <laughs> and just get on with it. Yeah, just be the character. You know, you mentioned when you were first going into film and television, what would you say is the main difference in the style of acting or the, the way that you need to approach a role compared to how you do in the theatre? Yeah, I, I think the obvious thing that you miss for the most part, I mean, if you're really lucky, you get it. But for the most part, when you're doing a screen job is rehearsal time. So your a lot of your process happens on your own. There's less of that camaraderie that happens in a rehearsal room for theatre where you're encouraged to make bad decisions. You're encouraged to try stuff that isn't going to be in the final version. You're encouraged to make a mess so that something creative can come out of it. And with film and TV work, you're, you're more likely to be hired for being closer to what they want to come out on screen, if that makes any sense. So I'd say that a lot of your work is done on your own before you get to work. Once you've got a job on telly, it, it would be quite easy because there's no one checking up on you to think, right, well, that's me until I turn up at work. And I think when you're on set, energy management is one of the biggest things. One of my teachers at Guildhall said something which echoes in my mind every day on set is that, you know, when you're doing a screen job, you're, you're paid to wait around and you do the acting for free. The time when you're not acting is when you've got to think, right, this is where I'm earning my money. So this is where I don't waste my energy. This is where I you know, stay focused, stay aware of what's going on around me, of who's doing what, whether I've eaten at the right time, whether I'm prepared for the next three scenes, because that the scene that's three ahead might come six hours previously in the series that you're working on. So the waiting around is where you've got to really conserve your energy, because it's really tempting to do your work in between action and cut, and then just go mental or just like turn your brain off totally. So there's a stamina element that you've got to work on in terms of focus, really. You're not going to get instant gratification from your performance like you would on stage. You know, you don't get the benefit of either a laugh or a curtain call. What you have to do is trust that there are really good directors and editors out there that are going to be putting the story together in a way that you don't have control over beyond what you've delivered. And when you're working with someone like, you know, like, like David Fincher, which is luxury of all luxuries, you do absolutely trust that because you firstly, you do about a, a billion takes, you know, you'll do 60, 70, 80 takes, which most people don't get the opportunity to do. And secondly, you just trust that he and his editors have seen your work. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Talk to us a little bit about what you have coming out shortly, Mank. So yeah, Mank, Mank is coming out imminently. It will be coming out because it's a Netflix original on Netflix on December 4th. It is the story of Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote or co-wrote Citizen Kane. And Mankiewicz, Mank, is played by Gary Oldman. And it's uh, the film is the is the 10 years sort of around the, the writing of Citizen Kane. So it's the 10 years leading up to it being made. Citizen Kane was sort of infamously about but not about life and the upper echelons of media society in America at the time, which is very much the world that Mankiewicz moved in. 
it's a time that Hollywood was kind of discovering that it could have power outside of its own bubble. It could influence the world at large. This this new industry was sort of flexing its its muscles and deciding that actually, you know, maybe we, the producers, should be dictating how America's run. Uh, and I play Irving Thalberg, who was the baby-faced, very young producer who co-ran MGM. So he, he was running Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer with Louis B. Mayer. And he had set up MGM when he was 23. So he was, you know, a massive overachiever. He was what was known then as that he was a blue baby. He, he was starved of oxygen at birth. And so he had a, a very weak heart. And he was told that he, he wouldn't make it to adolescence. And then he was told he wouldn't make it to 20. And then he was told he wouldn't make it to 30. And so he always had this ticking clock, really. He sort of saw himself as a, as a time bomb because he knew that he could drop dead at, at any moment. So in the short time that he was alive, it was a painfully short time. He died when he was 37. He produced 400 films, which is, which is insane. You know, their Grand Hotel, their Ben-Hur, their Mutiny on the Bounty, their King Kong. Like they're, they're big, big, big films. And he sort of revolutionized how filmmaking worked. He came up with the idea of writer's rooms. He came up with the idea of reshoots, of um, test screenings, things which we take for granted as being part of the Hollywood uh, infrastructure now were his innovations. And he also, it's where we don't align, he was, he was rampantly right-wing and absolutely hated unions and everything they stood for and anything that even sniffed of, of, of socialism. Um, so he, he would set about doing everything he could to, to crush that wherever he saw it, which is a big part of the film. He created a really early example of what we'd now call fake news. He filmed a load of fake documentary footage, um, staged interviews, actually using extras that were out of work to the Depression, extras from MGM, pretending to be members of the public, voicing their opinions on electoral candidates, Republicans and Democrats. And he did it very cleverly so that it sort of pretended to look vaguely even, but was actually steering everybody towards the Republican candidate. And he played them before every single MGM movie in this electoral race mm -hmm. as news. So people would go to the cinemas thinking they were watching news, thinking, and then they'd come out being massively influenced by it. But of course, he totally staged the whole thing. And I think that's something that is if not exactly parallel with what's been happening recently, it's pretty flipping close. Um, well, I was going to say that is a conspiracy theory that has been accused, definitely. That, oh, of course. I mean, yeah, it's been uh, used in, I mean, it's been used about protesters, hasn't it? And it's been Yeah, you've seen the same people popping up in different videos. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen any clips like that, but... Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and, and that's part of the film. Like, Mankiewicz is listening to the radio and goes, I, I, I know who that member of the public is i think it's it's absolutely fascinating that somebody just going you know what i i know what i believe in and i believe in it very strongly and i have the capacity i've got the kit i've got the ability to make a difference um so why wouldn't i is yeah. his argument and he sort of says to the world you know you'd do the same for your side if you could but you can't and i can so suck it up it is it's really interesting but also quite scary one how easily the masses can be influenced and two who's doing it and why they're doing it, do you know what I mean? Like, totally. If you frame yourself as trustworthy, as the voice of reason, and you say, you know, just before you watch this film, there's some news, just watch this newsreel. It's nothing to do with us. We just, you know, we're just delivering it to you because we're responsible. If you get to set that agenda, then you've got limitless power. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting character to play. I mean, how did you, like, approach getting inside his head? Uh, it was not an unpleasant job <laughs> because... 
because of the world that the film's about. So, I mean, I, I started by frantically reading. There's a book by uh, Mark Vera about Irving Thalberg, which really had more insights into him than I'd found anywhere else about sort of his, his inner journey and his personal journey. So I, I read that. And then the really tricky bit, so I watched a lot of his work. I, wa- I just watched loads of, of old movies that he produced and looked at the sort of script notes where they're available. Um, I visited his house. Mm. I studied maps and and sort of ground plan, floor plans of the old MGM studios where he worked because everyone, when they talk about him, talks about how it was just his, that was his home, really. He, he was more at home there than in the home he built. So I didn't want it to feel like I was just sitting in a set. I, I wanted to feel like I knew where every door led, you know, and, and I knew where every chimney pop came out because I thought how often do you get an opportunity to do something like that like to shoot a film about old Hollywood in Hollywood on some of the old lots on some of the old stages that they used with probably my favorite director in the world you know and some of the best actors so yeah I mean preparation was a joy because it was watching a lot of movies reading a lot of books and we did have very luckily three weeks of rehearsal so that's what I was you know, saying earlier, very occasionally you do get some, but it was sitting around David's office table, his conference room table, mm-hmm. just reading, reading, reading the scenes over and over again, changing a word here, a word there, working out what we were trying to do at every moment. He was rewriting little bits. And actually, again, with this film, the subject being what it is, a lot of rehearsal was sitting around with people sharing stories, you know, stories of, of the era, things that they'd learn things that they'd heard. David would tell stories about other films he'd worked on that would have parallels to the one that we were working on or, or the stories within the film that we were making. So it was just a case of immersing. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us who else was involved in the film? I know you've mentioned one or two. It's what we'd call an ensemble cast. Uh, so at the very top is Gary Oldman, who's ba- he's basically in every shot. He's definitely in every scene, but he's basically in every shot. He is a master, as far as I'm concerned. Gary on set is kind of how I want to be on set if I manage to keep working for a long time, because he takes the work seriously, but not himself. He knows we're there to do a job. He's curious about everyone else. He knows that even though the film is orbiting around him, everyone else's work is as important as his own. So Gary's fantastic. Then you've got Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davis. Like she just glows out of the screen. She's phenomenal. Arliss Howard, who plays Lou B. Mayer, so my sort of partner in crime, who I guess just sitting with Arliss was enough preparation with me because he's been there and done that and seen everything. And for every crappy anecdote I'd tell about some play I did or some TV job I did, he'd be like, oh yeah. And then of course, when I was having an argument with Stanley Kubrick about this, that and the other, I'd be like, okay, Arliss, right. I'm going to sit and listen to you now. Um, then there's a load of Brits in the film, which is always nice. So it's me, Tuppence Middleton, who plays Sarah Mankiewicz, Herman's wife. There is Sam Troughton, who plays uh, John Hausman, who produced Citizen Kane. There's Tom Burke, who's playing Orson Welles, who is startlingly similar to Orson Welles on, on screen. Uh, Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst. So it's, you know, it's a pretty, it's pretty good company to be in. You're on your A game when you go to work, not in a in an oppressive, pressured way, just you just go, right, every, everyone here is at the top of their game. They're working as hard as they possibly can, like from Gary to the crew, you know, the crew were as inspirational as the, as the actors in terms of the commitment. So you think, if I don't put everything I've got into this in terms of commitment, then I'm just going to regret it. And also I'm going to probably have a bit of a miserable time because I'm going to be feeling like I'm playing catch up all the time. 
So yeah, you can either go, you know, they'll carry me or you can go, right, I'm going to, I'm going to stay fit. Like I've, like you've been in training at the gym and go, right, this is now I'm, now I'm actually running the race. So mm-hmm. I'm going to run with them, not behind them. No, that, that totally makes sense. I think that, I mean, I, I also do acting as well. Um, mm. And I do find that when you're working with people who, who are really good, it just inspires you. You know, it's not, it's not a competitive thing. It's a collaborative thing. You know what I mean? It just inspires your performance. Totally. Cause it feeds you, doesn't it? Yeah. And I do think you've got a choice to either, um, especially in, a, in, a, in an environment where the work is, is quite intensive. You either go with it and you tire yourself out, but you get something from it. And every day at the end of work, you feel a little bit better and fitter. Or you, if you don't buy into it, then you just have a crap time, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, obviously, for coming on. Is there any final tips that you would like to give to any aspiring actors? I mean, I would say make sure there's nothing else that you can do. Make sure there's nothing else that you can forgive yourself for doing. If there's another job that you can see yourself doing, do it. If there is no other job you can see yourself doing, be an actor because it's not easy but equally know that if you've got something in you that that needs to tell stories and needs to connect to people and needs to share stuff with an audience that that your that your voice is really valid and i think at the moment what with the world in its pandemic state and and various economies on the brink we, the arts can be chucked under the bus i think and i think are being chucked under the bus by people who, who see them as a as a luxury to be enjoyed in the good times and discarded in the bad times. But I think, I think it's the opposite. I think art is absolutely fundamentally necessary. I think people are going to need art more than ever when we come through this, because there's going to be a lot of people in a really bad way, um, emotionally, obviously financially, but you know, people, there's going to be a mental health crisis if there isn't already, which I think there is. And we're going to need theatre, film, music, performance, dance, all sorts to help us through that, to get us out of our own heads, to help us express things that we're trying to process. And so I think to anyone who is having a tough time at the moment, firstly, you're not alone. And secondly, no matter what the message is that you're getting from up top, you're valid and, and your voice is important and valid. So trust it. Thank you so much for that, honestly. That's wonderful.